Welcome to Marcel's Margarita Madness, the podcast for margarita and tequila lovers. Without further ado, here's your host, the madman of margaritas himself, Marcel Brown. Welcome to another episode of Marcel's Margarita Madness. I am your host, Marcel Brown, the madman of margaritas. Today, I have a very special guest, Tanya Brown. She is a professional bartender and mixologist, a beer sommelier in training, and she's got about a decade of experience in the bartending slash mixologist profession. And not only that, she has about, uh, let's see here, about uh, closing in on 44 years of experience being my sister. So welcome, Tanya. Thank you very much for having me. I was wondering when people might make that connection between Marcel Brown and Brighton Tanya Brown on. Exactly. Although the last name, you never know. It could be it could be a common thing. But in this case, uh, yes, I have you on um, primarily, not because you're my sister, but because you are a professional bartender and mixologist. And so being very familiar with your history and, and, and that, I thought this would be a great insight. And I know for years, for you, very similar to me, we, we take our drinks very seriously. We study things, we, we get into the details. So I think uh, you will have a very fascinating uh, tale to tell and information to share on not just margaritas, but also tequila and, and mezcal as we talked about before getting on. So anyway, let's, uh, let's start talking about margaritas. So as a professional bartender, mixologist, studying the details of what makes good drinks, what can you tell us about what you think makes a good margarita and, um, you know, what maybe some tips on, uh, you can give to people to order a good margarita? Well, that's a great question. So, uh, the first thing that I'll start off with right off the bat is that my journey into margarita making, uh, and in many ways, we'll go ahead and and go ahead and credit as well. Mixology starts with you. Uh, it points right back to you, as a matter of fact, as you well know, mm-hmm. and a simple phone call that we had. Um, and also, as now we've been discussing of late, uh, now it turns out that what we didn't realize at the time is that that's uh, that that's sort of now mired in controversy. So. Mm-hmm. Um, Anyway, it basically, when I decided to bartend, the the story there of bartending really began with uh, in need of a career change, having come from education and nonprofit and music and a variety of other things. I really, I, I knew that I wanted to get into a craft that I really enjoyed that is beverage making. And so therefore I already had the idea in mind that it would not just be bartending as in I needed a job, but bartending as in I was choosing an enjoyable career. And so that distinction meant that even in the weeks leading up to before I even applied for any job, I, it was just endless research, as you say, just really caring right away for the craft, setting the stage and, you know, just signing up for articles and studying as many tutorials and, you know, studying flashcards, memorizing drinks. I mean, I, I went way, way further than you need to. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at any rate, uh, when I first landed a gig at a dive bar, that's 
where a lot of bartenders will typically start out is, you know, there's there's kind of a nice humble rule about uh, your beginning bartending journey, which is, you know, get hired at the first place that will take you. So, uh, so my journey is very typical, uh, having started out at a dive bar. The one difference notably with me in that path was that I knew that I wasn't going to be long in a dive bar and that I already knew what sort of bartender I wanted to be, which was a mixologist, someone who cared deeply about the ingredients, having already had an, you know, a, a long history of caring about my ingredients to begin with. And then also craft beer is a, another passion of mine. So when, uh, so when I started, you know, obviously in dive bars, you're going to have sort of like cheap uh, syrups and, you know, a lot of liqueurs, a lot of artificial ingredients. And so I, I endeavored to take the harder path, which was to, be on the side making my own simple syrups and fresh squeezing my own limes and everything and uh and making things from scratch which earned me two reputations right away one is that even from the beginning i could make a good drink but number two i was the bartender that took forever to do it so uh, <laughs> you know both things however that first drink uh when i first you know there, there's sort of this um old custom that I really delight in. You don't see it as much anymore, but in dive bars, there's kind of a courtesy where uh, when you get off your shift, you're welcome to a complimentary after shift cocktail uh, or beer. And I took full advantage of that as an educational purpose. So when people, when, when I would get off shift, I would just make a drink, uh, a fresh from scratch drink that I never made before. And I created a cocktail life list. So every day it was a new drink. The first drink that I decided to make was, in fact, a margarita. And that's, of course, where you come in. I called you and I knew that you had this beautiful, at that time, I think it was uh, a humble website with a little blog, the best margarita in town, mm -hmm. and that you were passionate about margaritas. You're known for that. I had always known you to be known for that. But you... I think you even used to start out with a long time ago with the mixes and then you, then you learned, uh, you know, uh, early on to, to go fresh. And so I knew that. So I called you up and, uh, do you remember the original recipe that you gave me? Yeah. I mean, it's, I think it's basically the same that I use today. So that's detailed that in an earlier episode, but right. basically, basically just a combination of fresh squeezed lime juice, good tequila, agave nectar and water shake it in ice and serve over ice yes so that is actually technically the very first mixed drink that i ever made uh in mm -hmm. terms of you know my own on my own terms uh not just something foolish that somebody ordered a dive bar but um the uh the actual intentional i'm going to measure everything out carefully and with care and everything was new to me. I had to figure out how to uh, work a, a shaker tin. And uh, so that um, recipe was fabulous, is fabulous, gets tons of compliments. I've never failed to get great reception from that particular recipe. And it's curious to note that I've never had anybody not call it a margarita or, or contest that it tastes like mm -hmm. a margarita. But as we know now, 
there is kind of a challenging notion to that, which is that it's not a margarita if it doesn't have orange liqueur. Right, which I detailed in an, in an earlier episode. And and so just to give a little bit of background on that. Um, so I found the recipe on a Yahoo answer board of all places. Yeah, I was mm-hmm. researching uh, how to make, a, you know, I was researching good tequila or margarita recipes. And I found a few different ones that that one stood out to me and I tried it and I really liked it. And I tweaked the the recipe because originally it said like the juice of one lime, which I eventually found that, well, one lime could produce a varied number, amount of juice. So eventually I settled in on an ounce and a half um, against two ounces of tequila. Um, and so, um, so that was the, that's where I found it. And for years, just was making it, making it at home, making it for friends, making it at parties, you know, told you about the recipe. You, you started using it professionally and, um, and yeah, for years, that's what, you know, people started to call it Marcel's margarita. And then, um, years later, just good doing additional research. I found that, um, uh, place it, it started, it was, had been called Tommy's margarita. Um, apparently created, I forget now, maybe in, in the nineties or something is when the, uh, popularity of that particular recipe took off in that under that name. So, and then to follow up with that very recently, right before I pretty much started this podcast doing an additional research. And I started finding that people were, were saying that just like you said, it's not a margarita unless it has orange liqueur. And in, in fact, some people say with it, what it's called either either the Tommy's margarita or Marcel's margarita is the is called a tequila gimlet and so I guess yeah I had never really heard much about that until recently um I was at a a place in Las Vegas that was kind of a craft cocktail place and the uh, server um mentioned she I asked for margarita and, and she was like well what kind do you want this kind, this kind, this kind, Tommy's margarita. And I was like, Ooh, I've, I've never heard that out in the wild. So give me a Tommy's and sure enough, it tasted virtually identical to what I Ah. like. So, so anyway, so that's out there. Um, you know, and so any, any insight on that, as far as, uh, you know, in your experience, like you said, no one's ever complained. No one, in fact, you get rave reviews about the basic recipe, but, um, any, any, any insight on that from your perspective? So the margarita comes to us by a few mysterious paths and the, the more kind of traditional story that I am familiar with is the, uh, which starts with the brandy daisy leading all the way up to the tequila daisy. And that, that kind of, uh, there, you know, there's a lot of conflicting dates. It's, it's, uh, you know, one of the, um, things that is kind of a, a side, a humorous side note is that the reason that you might come across a lot of different origin stories with uh, when things were made and how things came to be is because it's also kind of like a drunken history, right? Mm-hmm. So a lot of people were having a really good time as these things were coming to be. So the Daisy is kind of said to come into play right around the 1860s. Although sometimes I've heard it arriving later on, like in the 1930s, 
but my familiarity with it was uh, earlier around 1860s. And the Brandy Daisy was this kind of novel drink that involved, uh, it did involve an orange liqueur as a matter of fact. And uh, I think I wanna say that it had uh, lemon, although it might've had some lemon and lime. Uh, now I'm getting all confused. I used to know this really well, uh, but there was that citrus and sweet component to it. And uh, it probably also had some sugar. And over time, the Brandy Daisy, uh, which is still a cocktail, uh, it kind of got replaced by just simply a daisy. And a daisy was just basically, if you take something like a, an orange liqueur and citrus, it's really going to pair well with any base spirit. So then the daisy became a take your pick base. And mm -hmm. so, uh, in fact, in a, a tap room that I was working at, where I was running the cocktail program, there uh, I had uh, actually had on there a uh, a daisy that I think I might have called like the downtown daisy or something. And the the concept was a pick your own, which was, you know, a pick your own base, and then we make the daisy around that. And so it it does genuinely pair well with with any base. Uh, but the more precise story of the margarita coming into play was um, that I'm more familiar with is that in, I think it was like 1936, um, there was a, an Irish bartender that, uh, well, sometime in the 30s, he uh, was asked to make a, I believe, a brandy daisy, and he just simply accidentally reached for tequila. That, it might even just be that wonderful um, in, you know, that kind of reflex that a bartender has, you know, where mm -hmm. in Mexico, you're going to be reaching for tequila all day long. So you might have just grabbed it without thinking. And the drink apparently was met with rave reviews. And then soon word started spreading. Everybody was coming to see this surly Irish bartender uh, for this, uh, this drink. And so the he was called, they were calling it a margarita because margarita means Daisy in Spanish. So, mm. um, and then I, I guess, a, uh, like a Chicago area journalist was traveling around. And when he went down to Mexico, he heard tell of, you know, in Tijuana, make sure you go see this legendary, uh, bartender. And he didn't want to give up the ghost at first. And the bartender finally admitted to him that it had just been all based on an accident. Um, so there, there's a couple other stories where that, that come into how it's made, but I think it's noteworthy, you know, nobody really talks about this. I've, I've tried to, to do some digging and as of yet, I really haven't been able to come up with uh, anything satisfactory, but one thing that, you know, I, I think is worth mentioning is that agave spirits have been around for such a very long time, dating mm -hmm. back to Aztecan, um, uh, you know, uh, spirit making and they, uh, Obviously, limes are also indigenous to Mexico, and then forever, for however long, uh, agave syrup has been extracted, the sap, and that's been a very long time, also Aztecan. Uh, it seems unlikely to me that the pairing of the three didn't come together just mm -hmm. through, you know, tribal um pairings and experimentation so i i in my my heart i i kind of want to credit you know um 
the sort of in indigenous era, um, early indigenous era um, of more being the ones who would have come up with a pairing, but I don't have any evidence of that. That's just mm-hmm. sort of my imagination. Well, it would make sense that right. given the long history of mezcal and eventually into tequila and yeah, the agave syrup has been, or probably been around nectar has been around for a long time. So being in limes being uh, very, very indigenous to Mexico, one would think that at some point in thousands of years history or whatever, that um, that pairing would have come together at some point. So, right. but it's interesting if it is, if it is true that it's a Irish bartender in Mexico. Yep. <laughs> so so the origin, uh, at least becoming popular, would have been Irish guy in Mexico. So that's interesting, which also just kind of funny, given that uh, at the time of this recording, we're getting close to St. Patrick's Day. Right. And I remember reading a long time ago, kind of a funny joke website, which I have not been able to find again since. But the concept was that uh, St. Patrick's Day is just the first day of a month and a half long um, party until Cinco de Mayo. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so basically, you uh, St. Patrick's Day is your warm up, and then you you are then you spend the rest of the the month and a half or so till till May fifth, gearing up for Cinco de Mayo. So, I thought that's funny, but I also have said it's it's also you know it's a it's a it's a now traditional drinking holiday both saint patrick's day and cinco de mayo and i figure well if we're gonna gear up for cinco de mayo might as well drink a green margarita on saint patrick's day i think it's just you know just makes a lot of sense to me and (laughs) and especially now if 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 it is if there is any truth to to the idea that an irish bartender popularized the what we now know as the margarita um i think that's yeah, I'm I'm going to take the opportunity then to celebrate St. Patrick's Day with with ample margaritas, especially this year. It's on a Friday, so it sounds like the start of a good weekend to me. Yeah, I mean it. It really does. And uh, you know, while I can uh, appreciate uh, you know that um, permission to indulge and and mm-hmm. that wonderful way to to merge the two. Uh, cultures together there I can offer even another as well I don't know if you are familiar by any chance with the San Patricio Brigade um not offhand all right so the San Patricio Brigade it's a a very interesting story of where the Irish and Mexicans uh where Irish and Mexicans really do uh, come together which is that uh, in the Mexican-American war there was this uh, brigade that they were, I think they were called the the Legion of Patricios or something like that, Battalion, St. Saint Patrick's Battalion, maybe, mm. uh, that they were sent into, they were, they, w- they had arrived, uh, you know, on Ellis Island preparing to have kind of a life of freedom. And instead mm-hmm. they were informed that they would be fighting uh, for the United States against Mexico. Now we have a conflict because the Irish uh, that were in this brigade were 
uh, Catholic and they were set against Catholic Mexicans. Mm -hmm. And at one point there was a particular um, regiment of this brigade that uh, was tasked with burning down a Catholic church. Mm -hmm. And that was uh, enough a, of a, you know, where you draw the line and they actually turned and joined forces with Mexico. Mm. The story doesn't end well. They were all executed. But, you know, that is just an amazing story. And uh, we we always want to hear a story of triumph like that. But, in fact, it was true. And it is celebrated in Mexico. And that does matter. So, also, um, in that way, we also have our tribute. Yeah. No, I'll keep that in mind. And I've... You know, I know, or I should say, I've heard of some history with Irish in Mexico. There's some background there with, with um, some mingling of the cultures and that. And I, I want to say, if there even was at one point here in the St. Louis area an, an Irish Mexican restaurant or bar or something. So cool. I'll have to go back and look in, into that. Um, yep. But in in the back of my head, I remember that there is some some mingling of Irish and Mexican culture in, yep. in history that that is significant. So I'll definitely look into that a little more. Yeah. But speaking of speaking of history, so you mentioned Aztecs and Mezcal. And so why yep. don't you give us a little bit of knowledge on the difference between difference and similarity between Mezcal and tequila? Well, uh, when you, uh, I, you know, uh, an immediate analogy would be uh, if you think of whiskeys, you have different kinds of whiskeys. You would refer to bourbon, rye, scotch, but they're all whiskey. Mm-hmm. And so uh, even though you you would not really refer to a scotch as a whiskey, um, you know, it, it still obviously is, is made as one. And the same thing that we have here with, uh, all tequilas ultimately are mezcal, mm-hmm. uh, but not all mezcal are tequila. The The only difference is that um, we don't really ever call uh, mezcal. We don't ever call tequilas mezcal. They're not synonymous terms, but botanically uh, the, di- the distinction is that tequila needs to be specifically the blue um, Weber agave and mm. the, um, and mezcal needs to cut. It, it can just come from, uh, a variety of types of, of agaves that mm. are from the maguey plant. So they, they come in, you know, all sorts of different names. Um, I actually had, uh, found it earlier, but I'm not going to bore you with it. It's just, you know, different types of plants. Um, but the maguey is also responsible for pulque and pulque is essentially a fermented agave wine, um, that is, uh, like kind of milky. It's drawn from the agave sap. So, uh, really you have the maguey is the overarching plant and that covers pulque, it covers mezcal, it covers tequila, everything. But, you know, tequi- Blue Weber is obviously a subset of that. Um, mm-hmm. The other thing is in the production of it, 
uh, tequila is when the pina, uh, I guess I should take a moment in case listeners don't know, a pina is when you have taken the uh, agave plant and it looks big and spiky like a yucca and you've shaved it all off, then you have uh, what's left, the pina. Pina means pineapple in Spanish, and it does indeed look like a giant pineapple. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that is what we're interested in using uh, when we when we make the spirit. And that is steamed in the in tequila making, and but typically roasted in mezcal making. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that adds like a whole lot of other dimensions. Uh, a, a whole other set of flavors that come out in the mezcal, including where it gets its characteristic smokiness. But based on how you roast it, it won't always be smoky, but usually mm-hmm. it is. So that's why we can circle back to that comparison being pretty good with scotch, which is also made in a process of uh, smoking peat or peat moss. And then that's how you get the smokiness of scotch or as we call it, peaty scotch. And, uh, and so a lot of people will think of mezcal is kind of like smoky tequila. Although to the trained mezcal drinker, there are many differences. Uh, Smoke is just a mere note or mere quality. There's, there's a whole lot of other layers too in a mezcal Mm -hmm. apart from tequila. It makes sense. In fact, I, I mentioned trying to remember if I mentioned it in a podcast episode or on my blog, um, and I'm going to have to get uh, one of the owners of this company on to interview here. There's a uh, company in Colorado that makes a Mezcal-like spirit uh, from Colorado prickly pear cactus, and it mm. tastes very much like Mezcal. It, in their case, the smokiness is a little subdued, so it's not overpowering. And I'm not a big f- I'm not a big fan of mezcals. I'm not a big fan of smoke flavor. So whether it's in the scotch or in a mezcal, I'm not a big fan of this, of the overly smoky flavor, but in this particular variety, uh, the smoke is subtle. And so it's not overpowering. And I also have had a couple of other mezcals where the smokiness was a little more subdued. It, it blended nicely with other drinks and, you know, make a mezcal margarita or something like that. So yeah, it's, it's interesting there. I'll just, the varieties of um, of spirits, how different they all taste once you s- sit down and really pay attention and try different ones and see how they're different back and back, back to back, so to speak. So, uh, by the way, I think that uh, it's noteworthy to mention that uh, you came up to see me in the Chicagoland area and we decided uh, one evening to have, uh, kind of like, I think it was, a, it was a, it was like a margarita showdown or something. We were, mm-hmm. we, we just had a lot of limes and a lot of tequila in the house and, and we were, we were making different drinks. And as, as the evening went on, I showcased, uh, my, the drink that when people ask me, what's my favorite drink to enjoy slash make, uh, you might tease the answer out of me out of, you know, billions of drinks that I enjoy that, uh, that a spicy mezcal margarita might be the top favorite. So Mm. I, you know, muddled those jalapenos and squeezed the limes and carefully mixed everything and shook everything up and just had this really, really stellar mezcal margarita. And I, 
didn't tell you what it was. I wanted you to just be blown away. Mm-hmm. But I didn't actually know. Somehow, I did not have the critical information that you're not a Mescal fan. So I, I, you know, I remember very well handing you this drink, just in eager anticipation that I guess you were going to stand up and remark how it was the most excellent drink that would like define a generation or something. And instead you had this look of like shock and displeasure that came over you and you're like, Oh, uh, is this mezcal? No, thank you. I think you just pushed it back at me. (laughs) And, uh, so I, um, I did very much enjoy that drink in case anybody was concerned. Mm -hmm. It was consumed lovingly, not wasted. Of course. Of course. And, and given my further experience now had it, having had more experience with different mezcals, I probably would have a, a different opinion of it now, especially being knowing up front that there would be the smokiness to yeah. it. Then, then at least I prepared and, and again, having a little more experience with it, I probably would, would be a little more discerning now and, and actually try to try to finish it, try to drink it and, uh, and see how I really enjoy it. So, you mentioned, I know you've told this story before about the, uh, the infamous worm in the bottle and a lot right. of people still associate that with tequila, but in fact, it should be associated with mezcal. So uh, you know the story, I'll let you go ahead and take, tell it. Yeah. So basically, um, that is, uh, first of all, I'm forgetting the name unless I stop dropping Google it right now, but that worm is not a worm as much as a larva of a moth that lives on the uh, agave plant. And uh, I'm sure it has a good old time with the sweetness. And uh, so that, I think that there was just this um, mescalero, which means mescal maker, who found in like the 1940s, he found the worm uh, in his, um, in the mezcal. And I think it inspired him to concoct a story that it was actually good for you. And Mm -hmm. it like contained like, uh, some, I, now I'm kind of, I'd have to Google again, but I think that there was, there were both ascribed to it, some properties of, uh, like that it actually was, somehow medicinal or nutritious but also kind of lucky too Mm -hmm. and uh but it it also was uh there there was kind of a story around it that it kind of proved its legitimacy if it if it had the worm in it and so this uh this larva started to be add kind of in a gimmicky way to uh tout the you know the the lore of mezcal and and to look for this larva so Mm -hmm. I think that the, uh, you know, considering that that story sort of uh, it, it, I don't know how long it lingered in generations. I mean, it was really just kind of like a moment in time of some brief lore, but it's still to this day, like, I think it's just so fascinating to a lot of people that that ever took place that in the, and keep in mind that worms were still being added like gimmick wise. Right. And Mm -hmm. I'm sure, you know, that probably there were places that even ordered dry worms so they could just put it in before Mm -hmm. serving it. And so that kind of lingered in some people's minds and, or I guess in, in the popular consciousness really 
And so, yeah, I will still encounter people who will try to, to like talk at me knowledgeably mm-hmm. and say, well, remember it's not a mess call if it doesn't have a worm and, you know, you just kind of like inwardly roll your eyes and, mm-hmm. and move on. And, but I guess people just find that fascinating. So, um, it, it is, I think, I mean, yeah. of all the different spirits out there, what, uh, you know, insects in the bottle is very unique. So, uh, yeah, that, that's what I've heard too, is that it was basically just a gimmick, um, right. in, in some mezcal brands to, um, make it so unique that people would want to try mezcal um and that so but anyway yeah, i thought that's a, an interesting story it comes up every so often people i still hear people say asking about the quote worm in the bottle and again they associate it with with tequila for whatever reason probably just because in the in the lore you know mezcal and tequila and all that just could get conflated so anyway that's that's pretty that's pretty interesting so I thought anyway. I would mention, yeah, before, before you move on, I thought I would mention that, um, you know, I, I just read like a lot of stuff and I do a lot of research and, you know, something that I've been able to identify a weakness is that I tend to not be very good with remember with getting to stick names and dates and figures as much as kind of concepts and, uh, stories. So, uh, the, you know, I, I remember a lot of this stuff, but in a moment, especially just casually talking with you, unless I go up and, and look it up, it's hard for me to remember, you know, exact names or dates. But so far, like the things that I've been sharing with you, they are, in fact, like, you know, you can Google them and you can find a lot more precise history. So I just thought it'd be noteworthy to mention that you can actually look up the history of the the name of the Irish bartender who kind of inadvertently created the margarita, the name of the reporter who went and found him, the year that he was there visiting him, the conversations that they had, uh, you know, the, the mescalero who found the worm, like it's all like, you know, very, it's, it's all stuff. If, if anybody's more further interested in it, you know, I'm just tossing out what might sound like these vague general generalities from my memory, but it's uh, all quite, you know, researchable and on Google, just throwing that out there. Well, sure. Absolutely. And, and I know I've heard you talk about these in the past, so that's why I wanted to, yep. to bring them right. up. And I thought they're entertaining subjects. Yep. So anyway, I think that pretty much wraps it up. So any, any last thoughts about any of the topics? Yeah. So, about? right. So you, you mentioned um, uh, about, the difference between te- uh, tequila and mezcal. And then I brought in pulque, but another thing that I want to talk about was sotol. And because I am hoping, and, and I am, I'm, I'm even going to say that I'm a little bit confident that sotol is going to pick up in some popularity. Tequila is wildly popular and always has been. Mezcal is growing with insane popularity. And I believe that Sotol is going to be a newcomer that is definitely not a newcomer. It has been around for a very long time. But uh, basically, it is a northern agave. Sorry, it's a northern spirit, um, Mexican spirit that is not an agave spirit. uh, But a Sotol is... uh, looks like agave if you were to uh, type in the sotol plant sotol meaning uh, desert spoon and uh, it's actually more related to a succulent than uh, than an agave 
uh, and well, I mean, it's not agave at all. And but Sotol is a, a, a spirit, a Sotol spirit, and it is kind of um, often described as a cross between a tequila and a mezcal. Um, I heard one guy on YouTube say it's like if you took the best of both of those worlds and combine them, you would get a Sotol and S-O-T-O-L if I didn't if you didn't figure that out. Uh, and uh, so uh, I have had Sotol, but I don't know if I would describe it exactly as a blend between mezcal and um, tequila, although I did hear that it uh, it had a description as kind of like roasted pumpkin. And I thought that was interesting because I would, I would actually agree with that. That was a little bit of, of um, uh, a similar idea that I had come to with it. And so the, um, the thing there is that you've got, um, the, uh, mezcal and tequila and sotol, what they share in common is that they all are protected under what we call NOM. Uh, and so that, um, certification piece is, uh, important because it, uh, it kind of protects like, um, how Sotol is made and the regions that it's made in, just like it protects um, the Jalisco, Jalisco and the surrounding regions of um, tequila and Oaxaca and also surrounding areas for mezcal. And the, uh, the notable difference, however, is that it's so northern that it actually, you can find Sotol plants in Texas and they do not stop the um, certification of it at uh, the international border. So actually you can, you can't like legally make te tequila or mezcal in the States, but you can in fact make Sotol in Texas. And so we already have some Texas distillers with it. So it could very well become a new next big thing to look out for. Well, I definitely will look out for that. And I think uh, we'll definitely need to have you back on this show and talk more details because I think you have still a lot of information that you could share, especially about the NOM uh, designation and that sort of thing. I've been hearing a lot more about that lately. Um, but before we let you go, let me ask yep. you this. So give me your top three favorite tequilas and why. Uh, okay. So um, top three te uh, favorite tequilas. Uh all right. I would probably say that based on taste, I have an appreciation for um, Don Julio. And that that is one that I have just found uh, to be great ranking in kind of across the various categories. I, I can... Uh, equally appreciate a Don Julio Blanco and mm -hmm. a Reposado and a Nejo. Uh, I am a big fan of Don Julio 1942. Uh, and, uh, you know, there, it gets some critics. People like to say, oh, it's played out. But, uh, you know, one of the things that you get there with a Nejo, um, the, the more that the agave spirit is aged, you tend to get 
um, sometimes some of these like caramel sort of butterscotch notes that come mm -hmm. forth. And so that makes it incredibly smooth. And so I really like it uh, a lot for that reason. And the Don Julio Blanco is very enjoyable because it is just, uh, it just always tastes like very pleasant agave. So I'm just always very happy with that. Um, I agree that Don Julio yeah. is probably my favorite. Oh, so. the great. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I like that. Um, and then a, uh, a second favorite would probably have to be, uh, the, there was, um, this, uh, this place I worked at that you actually went there. Uh, that was a tequila. It was a Mexican restaurant with this beautiful sort of tequila bar. And they had like just trillions of tequilas all over the place. And, uh, but the owner, um, he, he owned a, um, a tequila called El Nacimiento, like, um, kind of birthplace. And, uh, so Nacimiento obviously was our flagship tequila that we used for absolutely everything. And we sold lots of bottles of it, but, uh, and he did, he did a Blanco. I think he only did a Blanco of it. I never had any other variety. So it was just Nacimiento Blanco, which was a solid one. But then I guess they had like extra kind of um, production material and they, they had a cheaper price point named Chihuahua um, tequila. And I remember being like such a fan of that it, it was and i haven't had it in a long time but it, it does ring out my memory so that is why i'm mentioning it because i liked it way better than a cimiento and i found that uh the flavors were just more it, it was just it was more smooth more enjoyable like a beautiful easy agave um just very clean very clear um and then uh for a third one um I mean, I've had my share of Corazon, so I guess Corazon is another one uh, that I really enjoy, um, but I don't, I feel like if I were to sacrifice Corazon and go in another direction altogether, it would actually be a mezcal, and um, there, there are two ties for the mezcal. One is La Luna mezcal. That's just a really great one that I very much enjoy. Um, and they make so they make so many varieties. It's it's hard to keep up with. But the other one is um, La Vida del Maguey um, Vida Mezcal, and uh, Vida is really sort of like um, it's hard to call mezcal commercial in the United States. But uh, but it, but Vida for sure is like kind of like the most you know if you see mezcal anywhere, you're always going to see Vida on any shelf that carries it. So a lot of people think, oh, you know, that's, that's kind of like how people like to make fun of Patron, which again, I, you know, I, I always find it kind of interesting that people make fun of Patron tequila because it comes from like the same regions as all these other wonderful tequilas. Right. Yeah. So uh, yeah, a lot of people say like, oh, it's just bottom of the barrel. I'm like, it is not, it's a, it's a really good tequila. It's like from the, around this region and uh, it's um, uses the same soil and like, um, it has the same mineral minerality to it and stuff. And, but anyway, uh, Vida is undeniably, you know, an astonishing one. Um, they, uh, you just, they're, they're classic mezcal. They have a bunch of other ones, uh, too, but that's, that's my very favorite one. So I'd have to 
go with that. So if, if I were to recap, it would be a Don Julio and then Chihuahua, which to be perfectly honest, I haven't tasted in a couple of years and I don't even know if it's still in production. And then the um, uh, probably via that mezcal so far. Um, but if I could just ramble for a second here, a brief caveat is that keep in mind that mezcal hasn't been with us much more than like a decade or so in the United States. And so the vast, 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 vast majority of uh, mezcals uh, we have not tried and will never try. Uh, they are all in Mexico. You're just going to have to travel there to the Oaxaca region to get some wonderful mezcals. And uh, also keep in mind, a lot of them don't NOM certify. So they are just mezcaleros that are generational. They, you know, they, they come with beautiful stories of um, a girl who might be sowing seeds of a um, a gay plant and then harvesting, you know, when she's eight and harvesting it when she's 30. And you'll get a lot of those wonderful um, stories and much more, uh, you know, in that rich traditional setting when you travel there. So that is truly where you'll travel, where you try out the biggest variety. So I know there. Yeah. Sounds, yeah. sounds amazing. Maybe one day we'll get a trip down there and, and yeah. do it, do a tour yeah. and get some tastings and just to circle yeah. back. Yeah. I, I do like Patron. It's a, it's a good tequila. I don't, my personal opinion is that's a little overpriced for what you can get, especially when you can get Don Julio at the same right. price point. So, right. um, but yeah, if Patron's a choice and that's the best option, I'm happy with that. So anyway, well, it has been fascinating, Tanya. So thank you again for being on. And like I said, I'm sure, uh, you know, given that you have a sibling privilege, um, if nothing else, <laughs> plus, plus your extensive, again, extensive experience in the, in the mixology field and, and all you know about, um, margaritas, tequila and, and mezcals and, and lots of other spirits, who knows, maybe we'll veer off that direction someday, but you're definitely welcome back. Thanks again for being on. And that wraps up this episode of Marcel's Margarita Madness. Stay tuned for an ep another episode. And until then, salute. Thank you for listening to Marcel's Margarita Madness. Remember to follow the podcast so you don't miss an episode. And make sure to check out marcelsmargaritamadness.com for extra details on this episode, as well as more mouth-watering margarita madness. <laughs>